You're listening to Remote Possibilities, a podcast on the intersection of technology, society, and education, brought to you by MarketScale. Now here's your host, Kevin Hogan. Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Remote Possibilities, the podcast that explores the promise and the perils of distance learning. I'm your host, Kevin Hogan, and I'm glad you found us. With me today is Jamie Cassip, uh, who up until recently was the education evangelist at Google uh, since I think about uh, 2006, right, Jamie? Yeah. Uh, Jamie's also an author and serves on a number of boards for organizations focused on education, innovation, and equity. He teaches a 10th grade communication class at the Phoenix Coding Academy in Phoenix and is an adjunct professor at Arizona State University where he teaches classes on policy, innovation, and leadership. And uh, dare I call you an ed tech legend, Jamie, but I know there's there's been many accolades. I think probably the most prestigious, of course, was being the most influential ed tech person for tech and learning in uh, 2013. Am I correct? Yeah, no, you guys call that early, huh? I my goal is always my goal is always to be on that list every year, and unfortunately, that's not how the game is played. <laughs> well, I, I was also thinking back at getting ready for this. Um, you're also on my cool list because you introduced me to the first iPad that was out in the wild. I think we we're in uh, Washington D.C. in uh, 2010, maybe in the spring. And uh, you had that under your arm and you let me uh, take a look at it. So I'll, I'll always remember that. It's like my Alexander Graham Bell moment or something. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, if, I, if I remember the timeline correctly, uh, I got it on the first, as soon as I knew it was coming out, I ordered it. And I got it on that Friday that it came out. And then on Sunday, I was headed to Washington, D.C., uh, for that, I think it was a Monday meeting that we had. Yeah. And so, yeah, you, it was like, you know, it was only two days out. It wasn't, it wasn't like it was a couple, even a couple months in, because by the time a couple months happened, everyone had it. So it was, you know, one of the first ones. And I got, I got one of the first ones because I saw the potential of what you can do with that. And I still have, I, I've had almost every model since, and I have the, the pro model now. I, I think it's a great tool. I think it's, um, a, a great tool for me to watch TV on. I yeah, think great, yeah, I think it's a great tool for me to edit edit uh, photos on with the pen. And, you know, there's lots of great uh, functionality to it. And you know, you've known me long enough to know that to me, it's never been about about one brand versus another. It's always been about finding the right tool for the right job. Right, right. Well. The, the toughest part about this conversation is going to um, get it to stop. <laughs> we could, I don't know where uh, we, we, we should start with this, but I guess in, in, at, at risk of burying the lead here, uh, in the intro I mentioned that you are now the former education evangelist at, at Google, and this is just some uh, recent news. Do you want to kind of give us a little bit of an update there? Yeah, so look, it, one of the reasons why I think um, – I get to do what I get to do is because I always look for what the what what's the opportunity that we have in front of us and and Google I've been at Google for 14 plus years I've joked for the last five years about wanting to get fired uh, and I've I stayed for as long as I thought I could add value there you know the team went from two of us uh, where we were so excited back in 2008 when we launched our Google bus tour because we had 2 million subscribers uh, <laughs> or users of Google Apps. Uh, so we, we thought we were hot, and so we, we launched a bus tour. 
um, to now, you know, having, I think, I don't know what the public number is, close to 100 million users using these tools around, around the world. And obviously, two people can't manage that anymore. And so I got less and less involved in the operations of things as more people came on board to run specific angles on what we were doing. And so for me, it turned into this, you know, I, I launched Google Apps for Education, I launched Google Apps in the K-12. I was, you know, both, both those first contracts have my signature on them. I launched Chromebooks into education. It was my idea, my strategy, my rollout. Uh, I launched a transformation center um, on the website. There's a whole team now that supports that effort. And, you know, there wasn't anything else for me to do there because I wanted to focus on what I think are the most important issues in education, which is around equity and diversity and inclusion and how do we do that. And Google has its role to play, but they're a platform company, right? They create platforms. Um, they are already doing enough, as my, in my opinion, on, on equity issues because their stuff is mostly free right. Right? and Chromebooks are affordable. So the tools are there. Now it's up to us out in the education space to figure out how to take advantage of those tools. I mean, yeah, and then, you know, that, that, that kind of pivots into um, the topic that I, I think is really the most important one to, for us to dive into. It was six months ago. Uh, I was still back at Tech and Learning and we were scheduling a podcast to talk about uh, digital equity. I mean, th this is a topic that I've listened to you speak about for over a decade. Um, and what's interesting to me is that all that talk for all those years and, and all the hand-wringing, uh, in the past four months, I've been speaking to directors of technology who suddenly were able, who were just kind of shocked into getting devices and getting access to all the kids in their district. Uh, you know, for the ones I've spoken to, you know, obviously there have, there have been plenty of failures going on as well. But it, I mean, the, the, the kind of the joke is all it took was a global pandemic, right? Right. Well, sometimes that's what you, what you, what you need, right? It's the old saying about taking, never miss an, uh, never, never miss an opportunity to take advantage of a disaster. Right. right. And so I, th I think, Yes, we've been talking about equity. We've been talking about equity as a general concept since the beginning. I actually, the, the Ed Surge did a, I, th I talked to Tony Wang about my leaving Google and he did a, an article for Ed Surge and the picture that he used was, it, it's funny because if you actually go read the article, the picture for the article is me standing in front of a screen where the, it says something like um, we're, we're you know we're not doing enough on equity or something something to that effect right yeah, so yeah. that and that that picture is like at least eight years old right so we've been talking about this for a long time and to your point we haven't really been paying attention to it I think what the pandemic caused us to see is that we do have a huge equity issue in this country and not just about technology. It's an equity issue around the type of education that's available. Uh, there's a bandwidth issue. There is a device. Uh, there's all these things that I think is was bigger than what we originally talked about. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that now all of a sudden we need to be using technology to create things instead of just consuming things. And all of a sudden, you're, you know, a kid having his mom's phone isn't good enough anymore. And so I think we're starting to see the bigger issues here. But again, I don't even think about these as an issue. I think about these as an opportunity, right? When I was a kid, if you asked me a question 
and I didn't know the answer, I'd have to tell you about, I'd have to give you the answer tomorrow because it took me 24 hours to get you an answer. Yeah. Today we have the world at our fingertips and we're not taking advantage of that. So I think that's the opportunity. Uh, when you look back uh, over the past few months, uh, are there examples of um, people taking that opportunity and doing it right that, that you've seen? Yeah, so, so I think the interesting thing about the pandemic uh, is there, I, I feel like there's at least two versions of what happened in education. And the first version is lots of schools uh, said, oh, we'll just do everything that we normally do in schools and do it online. Uh, and for the most part, that turned into a disaster. Yeah. Right? Because you can't do that. It's not the same thing. And, and I think that's another awakening is that, oh, just doing everything with technology doesn't make it any better. Sometimes it makes it worse. And then there were some schools and some systems where they didn't miss a beat, right? Take Chris Lehman's school, the Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia. You know, I talked to him you know, a couple months ago and he's like, yeah, no, we didn't, we didn't really miss a beat, you know, because we're student driven, because students run the show and students drive the projects. The big difference was, okay, so the kids couldn't, you know, the project teams couldn't meet in the hallway and work together. They had yeah. to meet over technology, but they, were, they all had devices anyway, and they were using them already. So they didn't have to learn how to use devices. And, and they just did everything online instead. So they didn't really miss a beat. And I think that there's a lesson there to think about how we use technology. And again, and I'm starting to see it already where, where we're talking about school in the fall. Um, like we need to, you know, teachers need to be able to teach a classroom full of 30 kids uh, the same way they teach them in the classroom, but now do it online. And that's just a disaster. And, and if we don't learn it now, we're going to learn it later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talk about uh, Chris and SLA and then you have the, uh, the school district of Philadelphia. Right. So I mean, you, you have to talk about scale and, and find solutions uh, at scale. Um, that starts to get almost impossibly complicated, right? Yeah, I, I, look, I, I never believed in scale, right? So uh, I think the, the, the reason we are having issues with education is because of scale, right? So if you think about it, you know, everyone is, everyone is learning the same history class, right? That's scale, at least in the state, right? There's a curriculum for the state on how to teach American history and all the schools do the exact same thing. That's yeah. scale. Uh, standardized testing is scale, right? So we, we already have scale. Um, scale is, 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 you know, McDonald's where everyone does the same thing at the exact same way and, it's, and, and you can scale a concept like McDonald's. We don't want McDonald's, right? We want local restaurants. Yeah. And so I think what we need isn't scale. I think what we need is culture shift. And so that schools and school districts um, create the culture internally at the school level, at the district level, to constantly innovate and constantly improve and fix the things that are the most important things, which are things like, you know, making sure you have the best teachers in place, making sure they have the best professional development, making sure that the teachers have the autonomy that they need. Now, if you do those things, um, you don't have to worry about scale. You'll get the best results uh, if scale isn't the solution that you're trying to get to. Yeah. Uh, as I continue to do reporting on this. I'm always desperately kind of looking for that, uh, I guess, that opportunity or that positive side. There's something's coming out. And a few districts 
uh, have spoken about the, it's almost the irony that because they need to communicate with parents, which, you know, that dynamic with parents, through the use of Zoom and through the use of FaceTime, even with one-to-one, they've actually forged stronger relationships as a result of being physically apart, as opposed to doing the way they used to do things, right? Um, Talk a little bit about the importance from an equity lens on both the um, the relationship with parents, uh, as well as kind of a, the social emotional learning aspect of things. Yeah. So, so for me, I ne- you know I I've always seen lots of solutions uh, in the education space that involve plant parents, right? Where parents are a big component of the solution that you need to create. Whether it's getting parents more involved, or how to improve parent engagement, um, and I never. Again, my personal perspective is that I don't want to count on parents, right? Like yeah. I, I couldn't count on parents, and and so I don't know why I would want anybody else to count on parents. So I, I want to eliminate parents as a requirement. I think it's great. I think we should include parents, but at the same time, if we're talking about equity issues, we're talking about a population that can't necessarily rely on parents. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to do is create solutions for them that could be potentially separate than what we do for people who have engaged parents who want to be more engaged with what their students are doing. I think what's interesting now, you know, one of the videos that I posted on my YouTube channel that resonated with people was the one about how it was for advice for parents, which is like, chill out, right? Like, yeah. don't, you're not a teacher. Don't try to be a teacher. Don't worry about them falling behind. Just here, if you want to focus on learning, do these things, right? And I talked about how they should let their student, their kids' curiosity drive what they want to learn about and how they should be there to kind of guide them and prompt them and ask them questions. I mean, you could get very basic. And, and even if you don't have a strong family support structure, you could probably get people, the adults in the people's lives, to be a little more loose when it comes to that. But if you're trying to get a parent to teach algebra, um, to a kid, uh, to a kid who grew up like I grew up, I grew up. That's just not going to happen. And yeah. so, I think we can rethink what it is that we do. That's the other concept that I'm seeing right now. Even the, the argument that the Trump administration is making, and I've and I've seen doctors make this. I've seen psychiatrists make this. I've seen child psychiatrists. This whole idea that students are falling behind, right? And so, my number one question right now is, what are they falling behind in? Mm-hmm. What are they falling behind in? Like. Like they're, they're right. It's they're, they're not meeting the state standard or whatever that. Yeah, they're, that's what you're saying. They're, they're, you're not. They're not falling behind. Learning is learning. Just because it takes me ten minutes to learn fractions and it takes you ten hours doesn't matter, right? So, I, I think that we need to redefine what learning looks like and focus on what I think are the most important skills and the, and the content, you know, every day my five-year-old gets up and I look at her and I think about the same thing every day. She's, you know, she's going off to school or she's going off to camp or she's going off whatever. And I, I want her to be able to be a problem solver. I want her to be able to critically think. I want her to know how to learn, which I think is the most important thing that we can focus on in school, especially given the pandemic as an example, because students have to do this on their own. I want her to be creative and I want her to, to be able to collaborate with others, right? Those are the things. And the content to me doesn't matter. I think the content can change. As a matter of fact, I want the content to be driven by her and the environment that she's in. Right. 
we'll take those concepts and talk about opportunities um, and all it takes is a global pandemic and we'll stare straight at September um, and look at the different scenarios, either uh, fully remote, fully back in person, as a, uh, the president tried to talk about yesterday, and then in between, which is like some sort of uh, you know combination of, of blended learning. Um, where do you see um, that headed, or where do you, in a, in a perfect world, what would the setup be? Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of districts are, are struggling with. I think there's some lessons that we can learn from what's happening in higher education too, right? Because the same kind of idea is happening in, educa- in higher education, whether colleges are going to be open or not open or partially open or online or all any of those things. And what I think higher, and I'm working with a number of higher education institutions, and what I think they're discovering is this this their aha moment is the fact that oh all the all the stuff about classes and and um and subjects and you know psychology 101 and psychology and in in india you know 203 and all these other things that they spend so much time trying to figure out and and master don't matter right yep or don't matter as much as they thought they did because my 19 year old is in college and he had to spend the last two months of his first year online and he basically spoke for the generation of 19 year olds across the world maybe but at least in the u.s when he said at a dinner i did not sign up for this yeah this is not what college is supposed to be i know i'm entitled i know i'm privileged but there's not this is not what i want and what colleges are discovering is that it's the experience that people sign up for and that the lessons and the education is part of the experience. So I think there's a, there's a lesson there to learn for K-12 and to ask a K-12 school, is it really about the subject or is it about the experiences? Is mm-hmm. it about the, the learning that happens on a holistic level? And if that's the case, how do we deliver that? And then all of a sudden you can rethink what learning looks like. And it's, uh, there's an article I posted on my Twitter account a couple weeks ago about how uh, the article is basically now that standardized testing isn't a requirement in this specific state uh, educators are coming up with new creative ways to teach like why are we doing that now <laughs> right right like right. like like so so i think we need to think about what is the experience that we want our students to have and how is it that we want to engage with them and then base a model based on that not you know, not looking at the tradition, the, 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 this is the opportunity. We have an opportunity to create something new. So we have an opportunity not to say, how did we teach school before and how do we do the same thing now online? And instead say, what does real learning look like and how can we use the tools that we have in front of us uh, to bring that real learning to life? Yeah. Uh, again, in conversation with, with districts, it's seen that they're, they're setting things up in another way, which is almost like an a la carte menu for students. Um, I mean, I've read there's a certain percentage of kids who have thrived in the spring because they, this is the way they like to learn best. Uh, you know, and you have a whole population of homeschoolers uh, who have been doing this since before it was cool, right? Uh, so you can offer some students um, a fully remote option, and then you have your hyper-socialized kids who want to get back into the building. Um, you know, hopefully be, if with all various 
health controls in place, you can do that. Or there may be something in between where you, you can you can tag online to a couple classes and then once a week go in to do some in-person stuff. Um, is that something you can see being implemented at a, a district-wide level? Yeah, I, and I think it's, important, again, back to the experiences model, right, which is, yeah, some students are thriving because they don't do well in social settings. They don't do well in large groups, and so they're thriving by doing this on their own. And sometimes it, it doesn't even have to be a holistic thing. It could be subject-based, right? So, for example, it, I, you know, I, I mentioned my, my, my YouTube channel. When I first started learning how to shoot video, I didn't take a class. I learned on my own. Yeah. Um, and if I learned on my own and then I went out and experimented with it, that's an experience class, right? That's learning through experience. Now, I don't think I would have done as well if you said um, you, I have to take a 12-week class and sit in the classroom with people and listen to someone tell me about how to do videos. So I think it depends on the subject. Whereas, you know, learning how to shoot on a, on a site probably is a great opportunity to take five or six people on site and and everyone experienced it at the same time in a social setting and, and doing it together totally makes sense. So I, I think the, the solution for me is it depends. It depends on what the subject is. It depends on what the skill is. And again, if we focus on these are the skills that we want our students to know how to do and we want them to have a basic understanding of these subjects and we're going to give them an opportunity to figure out what subjects they want to learn more about then then there's a model there whether that's in, on in person online a combination of both but the answer is you know this idea that education isn't a process right the education is something that we look at as you're educated and you have to take a class and you're an educator and you're a student and we look at it as a process and what we need to do and this is the opportunity that we have is that we have to realize that education is a mindset mm -hmm. and so how do we help build that mindset and i think the first place to start is teaching kids how to learn right and and i think that is to me the place that I think that we can all focus on and whether that's online, in person, some hybrid model, teaching our students how to learn, how to understand. So it's this self-awareness, right? This, I don't know how to do something. Where can I go learn how to do it? How do I know I'm learning how to do it? And then how did I, how do I know whether I learned how to do it or not? All contained in its own ecosystem for the student. And I think that if we start there, uh, all the other subjects and all the other things come naturally after that. And, and, and some of it is as simple as rephrasing things, right? Like math, for example, has been a struggle for students since the beginning of time. How many adults do you know? Maybe you say this yourself. I'm, I'm just terrible at math. I'm not good at math. I never got math. Um, I, my experiment with a real person, with my five-year-old, you know, three years ago when we started talking about math, I didn't talk to her about math as a subject. I talked to her about math as life. Mm -hmm. I told her that math is everything. Math, if you understand math, you understand how the world works. You understand, you're like inside the matrix. She doesn't know what the matrix <laughs> is. But, uh, you know, and now this kid at five years old, you know, she can, she can multiply, uh, she, can, she can add, she can subtract, she does things in her head, she quizzes us all the time. She looks at everything in terms of math. She sees the world as math, right? So yeah. teaching her how to learn is more important than sitting her down and saying, you need to learn your multiplication table when it's not associated to anything. Let's pivot back 
to the industry uh, and their responsibility, their collective responsibility when it comes to solving um, the digital equity situation. So you talked a little bit about Google and the platform and that that has um, that they are doing their part. Uh, what about the telcos? Uh, what about the curriculum companies? Um, what about the cable companies? Um, what should they be looking at uh, beyond just commercials that tell us that they're with us? Well, so again, I think that we're talking about pre-corona and post-corona. And even, you know, those of you people who know me well know I'm not a big fan of the current administration, but even the current administration, I remember seeing this in like April. So we were only a couple months in and in April, uh, the president said, you know what, you know, we need to work on infrastructure. And the first thing we need to work on is broadband, right? Yeah. Like, like that's how much we've changed in recognition of this being an issue. Yeah. So I think, we, you know, if you look at the pyramid of needs right now, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, keep people alive. But I honestly think that this will be a hot topic that we need to figure out. And then part of it is a funding issue and part of it is a technology issue. You know how hard it is? I'm in Arizona. I'm in Flagstaff. If the, 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 the Navajo Nation is a couple hours from here, the Hopi Nation is a couple hours from here, very remote areas, um, very... Uh, you know, there's nothing between here and there except high desert. Yeah. You know how hard it is to run fiber there? Right. Right. You know how, you know how that's just not, po it's not possible. Yeah. Right. And so you could do it. And the funny thing is like, okay, let's start. Let's start today. We're going to take, it's going to take us 10 years to run a cable from Flagstaff to, <laughs> to the, the Navajo Nation. And then we're going to be like, okay, we got the cable. And they're like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. We got these other innovations that have happened 10 years ago. That right. The leapfrog. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's, that's a serious issue. And so are there other ways? What's the temporary solution until that innovation shows itself? Whether that's satellites or balloons or you know, whether it's Facebook or... So, so there's an opportunity here for, for funding to do these things. I don't think the tele companies or the cable companies should be doing it for free. I think that there's a benefit for them in the long run to get people online, but at the same time, the government needs to recognize that, that broadband, and I think this is what's happened, is that broadband is as important as, as electricity. And that if you focus on having clean water and having electricity, then you should probably focus on broadband in the same category. And I, and I think you'll start seeing that. Now it's just a question of, of, do we have the right innovations to get it into the remote locations, to get it into places that's difficult? That's, yeah. that's on the rural side. Yeah. On the urban side, we got to change some of the policies, right? So you have these these companies, uh, these cable companies that say, "Oh no, we offer high you know high speed broadband for ten dollars a month to low income families," but then you start looking at the fine print and you realize that oh they've had to be either uh, existing customers or customers that have never had a late bill or have a credit rating of a certain amount, and so you eliminate lots of people. So these are man made things that we can go in there and fix pretty quickly. Gotcha. Well, to, to, to finish up here, uh, we're, we've been talking about opportunities in disaster. If we can go back uh, personally, what opportunities do you see up for, for you going forward? Yeah, and I, so I just posted a video yesterday, or yeah, I think it was yesterday, about this idea of, you know, the question I get, I got in the past week is, what's next? What are you going to do next? And I've been struggling with the word next because I don't want to do one thing, right? Like, yeah. So I think about 
you know, what is next? And I don't want to limit myself to one thing. I think the equity issue isn't just in K-12. The equity issue is in higher ed, right? So one of, here's another example of a problem that I want to solve, which is as a public figure and someone who's out there and that's easily easily reachable, and most people, you know, if you can't find me, there's you have a search problem, right? But, <laughs> so I, I'm, I mean, my message button on Twitter is open, right? There's lots yeah. of ways to reach me. And, and that being said, 99% of the young people who reach out to me don't look like me, don't have my economic background. Why, right? What's the issue there? And there's lots of things to dive deep into that, right? Yeah. There's, there's do, are we teaching how to create a, a, a network for, for, for students growing up in poverty when, they, when, they're, when they're starting to be successful? Do we teach them how to create that social capital? Do we teach them how to collaborate and find people that will add value to their life? Like, are we doing those things? And so there's a whole problem there in higher education about like, it's not just about the education, it's about creating the social capital and creating the strategies that are gonna help you succeed. And because I'm not hearing from them. I'm yeah. not, I'm not, that's insane that I'm not hearing from them, right? And so every once in a while in the blue, and I got one today, as a matter of fact, from a, from a, from a tech founder who's like, hey, will you mentor me? And it was a, a black woman. And I'm like, this is, this is a rarity. This should be every day. Yeah. Like, this should, I should get 10 of those a day. And the fact that I don't is a problem that I want to solve. So that's one thing. Then there's, you know, we talked about K-12. And then even in the business, you know, I've worked at Google for 14 years. And before that, I was seven years as a consultant at Accenture. I know some stuff about business. I know some stuff about running companies. I know some stuff about putting teams together and what does that look like and diversity. So one of the videos that I'm trying to figure out how to film right now is around dress codes and how dress codes in companies are a diversity issue. And we don't think about it that way. Hmm. And that you're asking me, you know, you're saying you have a dress code and you want, but you want my authentic self, yet you're making me show up to work dressed like you. Uh, and, and that's an issue. Right? Right. And so there's lots of problems to solve in that space. So I, I think I, I took the approach of trying to change things at scale, right? And that's a great thing about Google where you can reach 100 million people and you can, you can have that kind of platform. But now I want to localize it more and, and be like, I want to work with this specific project or this school or this university or this business or just to start having more of a spotted impact around different projects and different problems that I'm interested in solving. So I'm trying to figure out how to do that and you know still pay for stuff. <laughs> right. Well, uh, your services are, uh, are desperately needed uh, and I think it will be uh, great for you to be able to... Uh, go out in in different directions so and look forward to watching um you succeed in those paths so uh, jamie thank you so much for uh for your time today and um let's let's do this in six months and see uh see where we got is that good and uh thanks everyone for listening uh actually jamie if you want to give a, a call out you say that you're easy to find but i mean just really your, your youtube channel is the uh the first stop yeah, so I, I so there's two places that I spend most of my time on now. Why? Right? So on Twitter, you can just my message button is is open. So it's at jcasap um, my Twitter account, and my YouTube channel is where I'm trying to lay out a bunch of information and stories and lessons learned from the 25 years that I've been around doing this stuff. And so 
you should go to my YouTube channel and subscribe and share and all those things. And it's just my name, uh, you know, youtube.com uh, slash Jamie Cassip, uh, and you'll find me there as well. So those are the, the two places that I would direct people to. And, and obviously I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. As a matter of fact, one of the things I'm gonna be working on is how to use LinkedIn more, because I think it's a great platform to focus on some of these equity issues, especially on the business side, especially on the place where a lot of this stuff really needs to get nailed down, which is, you know, the money side of things. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely see on LinkedIn. I agree with you. It's a, uh, it's a powerful platform that I hadn't used until recently. So another, uh, another gift of the pandemic, but uh, once again, thanks for coming and thanks everyone for listening. And I hope you uh, load up uh, another episode of remote possibilities soon. Thanks and goodbye.